first principles of preaching is if you don't strike oil in the first five minutes, stop boring. With this in mind, the preacher will often, and I've done it many times, search long and hard for an opening illustration which will highlight the central theme of the message on that particular occasion. But in today's message, this was totally unnecessary. For the Lord Jesus Christ, the Master Teacher, provides the best possible example of our theme for this evening, which is from grief to joy. It's there in verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Now, no mother here needs me to explain that illustration. And no father who's ever been present at the birth of a child needs me to explain it. And even if you haven't had that privilege, and it is a gift of God, not a right for anyone, you all understand, no matter where you're from, what Jesus is talking about. You don't need to know the cultural background because although we have modern medicine today which alleviates some of the pain, don't tell that to any mother that it's a painless process. It is a painful process. And yet at the end of it, there is great joy. So the pain in childbirth turns to joy when the child is born. But while the anguish is largely forgotten, which is why you don't need a picture of it, in the joy that follows, nonetheless, that pain is unavoidable if a baby is to be born. Let me put it this way. The pain is productive. And it so ultimately is worthwhile. Which is why childbirth is the best illustration of what Jesus is talking about. Uh, not all pain is productive. Uh, let me give you another example, a personal example, in which I experienced grief and then joy. And you'll see why it's not a good example of what Jesus is talking about. Many years ago, in a bush village in a mud house with a tin roof in Nigeria, I encountered a bout of malaria. Most of you have probably never had malaria. One or two of you have. I have never felt so ill in my whole life. I really thought I was going to die. But eventually, after several hours with a raging temperature, ranging from very hot to very cold, and the most terrible headache imaginable, finally, I can remember it, the fever broke, and with it came this immense relief from grief to joy. However, my pain was not at all productive. I derived nothing from malaria other than a weakened body with aching joints and exhaustion. I would have been better off never to have caught it. And yes, I did take all the medicines, but it still didn't make any difference. But Jesus tells his followers that the grief they are about to experience will turn to joy... Because looking back, it will be seen to have been worthwhile, productive. So what is it that Jesus is talking about here that is going to cause them so much grief 
which will be turned to joy? The answer, quite simply, is the death of Jesus on the cross. Because Jesus knows this is about to take place. The death of Jesus will bring them great grief as they see their master dragged through the streets, nailed to a cross, where he will hang and die. Jesus tells them, this is certain to happen. He uses the strong words, Amen, Amen. Translated, I tell you the truth. He says, you'll weep and mourn, the world will rejoice and be glad. Verse 20. When he is killed and buried. And that's why he says, in a little while, you'll see me no more. I'll be taken down from the cross. Laid in a tomb. But, this will not be a permanent state of affairs. For your grief will be turned to joy as the promise of Jesus is fulfilled. He says, in a little while you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. Now, while scholars have wrestled over what Jesus means by these words, a little while, the obvious, though maybe not the only meaning of it, is that period between the death and resurrection of Jesus. For a little while, when he is interred in the tomb, the disciples do not see him. But after a little while, they see him again when he is raised from the dead on the third day. Then their grief turns to joy. In his commentary on John, Leon Morris writes, It may be significant that Jesus does not speak of their sorrow as being replaced by joy, but of turning into it. The very same thing, the cross, would be to them first a cause of sorrow, but later a cause of joy. So, why is the cross of Jesus a cause for joy? How is it that the cross of Jesus, which will cause them so much pain and sorrow, will later bring them joy and gladness, like that of a mother following the painful process of childbirth? Let me suggest in these verses, and I can only skim over the surface as we come around the Lord's table, let me suggest that in these verses there are at least three reasons for joy, which we can celebrate this evening because we look back And when Jesus spoke these words, they were still looking forward to that little while that he speaks about. Okay, here's the first thing. The first reason for joy is understanding the plan which Jesus fulfilled. Understanding the plan that Jesus fulfilled. Following the Commonwealth Games recently and the great success of the Scottish team, They're all talking about the next big event in athletics, which is the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. Friends, there are people now, young people, who are planning for 2012 in London. Imagine a young guy or girl, early teens, great potential, sprinter, wants to be in that 100 yards, 100 metres, shows my age here, that 100 metres final in London in 2012. Imagine from now, 2006, devoting your whole life and all your energies, all your training, all your resources, abandoning everything else, all the luxuries and pleasure of life, just for around 10 seconds down a running track. Heading for that one moment. Celebration or disappointment. Now Jesus, alone when he came to earth, 
was aware that his life was headed and was a preparation for one supreme event. For one moment in time. One particular point in time. Jesus calls it literally the hour or my hour. And Jesus is preparing for this hour. John's Gospel particularly talks about this. We don't have time to look at it all, but there'll be some things coming on the screen that, that may help you. At the beginning of his public ministry, remember the first miracle he did in Cana of Galilee when his mother came to him and said, they've got no wine? What did Jesus say? He said, woman, why are you bothering me? My hour has not yet come. This is not the moment. Three years later, the moment arrives. Now is the hour. Following his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which we celebrate next Sunday, Notice what Jesus says at this point in time afterwards. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. What is he saying? The hour is here, the moment of my death. I'm going to be the seed that falls into the ground and dies to produce much seed. A great crop. And he says, there's no mistake about this. Later in that same chapter, chapter 12, he says, now is my heart troubled as he thinks about what's involved. What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. And so as we began this series, if you were here with us, and you can listen on the internet or get tapes if you're interested, when we began right back in chapter 13, if you turn over in your Bible, just look at the page, uh, chapter 13, And verse 1, this is the last evening before the death of Jesus. It was just before Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time, now the literal Greek there is the same word. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. The time is here. And now towards the end of these last words to his disciples, Jesus begins to explain that this hour, this moment in time that he's been preparing for, is going to be a moment of great grief. Like the moment when a woman is in labour, a time of anguish. Look again at our verse, verse 21, John 16. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time, again it's the literal word in Greek, her hour has come. But when her baby is born she forgets the anguish because of the joy that a child is born into the world. And finally, when we come to the end of this, we'll now be turning next week, God willing, to John chapter 17. Jesus turns from his disciples and then he begins to pray to his Father in final preparation for the hour. Look what he says. Chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this to the disciples, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time, same word again, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now, here's the great paradox. The hour of glory will be the hour of shame, the shame of the cross. And when it happens, the disciples will not understand what's going on. How can their Messiah, the one who done all these miracles, how is it possible that he's going to be nailed to a cross and actually killed, that a soldier will thrust a spear into his side and his dead body will be carried down from the cross? And that's why Jesus is beginning to explain to him, look, you're going to go through this grief. 
But it's not the end of the story. Because joy will follow, just as surely as the anguish of childbirth is followed by the joy of the birth of a child. Of course, the disciples at the end of this think they understand. Verse 29, then Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things. You don't even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. But Jesus knows that they don't really understand. There's a note of irony in the words of Jesus because he knows they're going to run away in confusion when he happens, when he's arrested in a few short hours, probably in a couple of hours from now, maybe even an hour or two. You believe at last, Jesus asked, answered. But a time is coming and has come when you'll be shattered, uh, scattered, shattered as well, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. So why does Jesus tell them something that he knows they won't understand? Because one day, helped by the Holy Spirit, they will recall what Jesus said and then they will understand. They will understand what Jesus said to them and why Jesus died on the cross. So when will they understand? Well, Jesus tells them. It will be after his resurrection. He says, after a little while, you will see me again. And when you see me, the penny will drop. You'll understand what I was talking about, which you couldn't follow at the time. You will see that the cross was no accident. But God's plan of salvation, which Jesus perfectly fulfilled as he comes to the hour. So here's the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the disciples. Here he's preaching with confidence to the crowd. Men of Israel, he says, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you, by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Now notice what he says. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Did he think that when it happened? Not at all. So it was a great disaster. He ran away with the rest. He denied his master. But looking back now, he understands. It was God's plan and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Acts 2, 22-24 Now, the key question which determines whether you understand what it means to be a Christian whether you understand the Christian faith whether you really are a Christian is this Do you understand the cross of Jesus? Because it's the heart of everything. In a famous book written at the beginning of the 20th century by P.T. Forsyth, who was a famous congregational minister and theologian, it was called The Cruciality of the Cross. And this is what he writes. Christ is to us just what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven and earth was put into what he did there. Christ, I repeat, is to us just what his cross is. You do not understand Christ till you understand his cross. So I simply ask you this evening, do you understand, I don't mean all the depths, but do you understand why Jesus had to die on the cross in that way? I remember many years ago when I went to study the Bible at a secular university down in Sheffield, one of my colleagues who was studying the Bible with me he said, I'm attracted to the Christian faith, but the bit I don't like is all that business about blood and Jesus dying on the cross. Take it away, you've lost everything. There's no Christian faith. Because there's no hope, there's no salvation. 
You see, the cross of Jesus is at the heart of the message we proclaim. The Apostle Paul writing to the Christians in Corinth. This is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And he goes on and says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block and foolishness, stumbling block to Jews, an offence, stupidity to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross is at the heart of the message we proclaim. And the cross of Jesus is also the event we remember. We do this because Jesus said before he left on this same night, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because it's at the heart of everything. You never shift from this in one sense. You may learn a lot about the Christian faith and it's important to learn as much as you can, but you never move from the cross. That's why we keep coming back again. It's level ground. Once again, we've just sung it, we come back to the cross. We remember why Christ died. So the Apostle Paul, again, writing to the Corinthian church, says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you see, all this flows, the joy comes afterwards when you understand what it's all about. Now, for these disciples, they didn't understand that. Jesus said, you're going to go through a lot of pain here. But when you look back, you'll say, it was so worthwhile because the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled perfectly the plan of God. That's the first reason for joy. Move a bit quicker. Here's the second one. Looking back, we also enjoy the privilege that Jesus promised. Let me ask you a personal question, if you're a Christian, about prayer. When you pray, personally, or even publicly, if you do that, it can be quite hard if in a large group of people. When you pray, who do you address? Do you address God? God the Father? Jesus? Or even, as some people do these days, do you speak directly to the Holy Spirit? Now, in one sense... It's not absolutely essential because we worship one God in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And we shouldn't also be too critical about the way people pray. The lovely story I heard of a young man who went to a church prayer meeting for the very first time and he plucked up the courage to pray. And afterwards an older brother took him on one side and began to explain to him uh, the more excellent things of God and what he said and how he shouldn't have said it and whatever. And eventually the young man stopped him and said, but I wasn't talking to you. Uh, granted this, the normal pattern of prayer that we are taught in the Scriptures in the New Testament is that we pray to the Father, through the Son, by, with the help of, the Holy Spirit. You see, one of the most remarkable things that the disciples of Jesus noticed about him was not just the miracles he did and his amazing teaching, But what impressed them was the wonderful relationship of love he had with his father. He had this intimate relationship with God, which they longed for and cherished. A relationship of love between the father and the son. And it's it's mentioned frequently in John's Gospel. 
John 5.20, it's that Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he does. And Jesus reciprocates that love by doing exactly what the Father shows him, telling what the Father's shown him, revealing it. John 14.31, But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And Jesus shows that same love that he has with his Father to these chosen disciples. John 15.9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, now remain in my love. And in response, the disciples show their love to Jesus by obeying his commands. Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey my commands. So the Father and the Son are joined together in a relationship of love. I hate putting these things up mechanically, but it may just help you understand. But understand this is relationship, not maths or anything like that, alright? And the Son and the disciples are linked together in love. But what about the relationship between the Father and the disciples? Up until now, the disciples have not experienced that intimate relationship of knowing God as their Father that Jesus did. But Jesus says, one of the joys after the cross is that this will all change with a new relationship of love. Not only between the Father and the Son, not only with the Son and the disciples, but also with the Father and the disciples. And the reason for this is that the disciples show their love for Jesus by believing that he comes from God. John 16, we read it, verse 27. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. So the circle of love, as it were, is complete. And it's made real to us by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, this new privileged relationship will be yours after the cross. You'll be able to address the Father directly in prayer. Now, this is a bit passe with evangelicals, because we all say, well, of course we pray to God the Father. Just stop for a moment and think how amazing that is. And what an amazing privilege it is. To know God intimately and to be able to address Him as your Father. The perfect Father. Better than the Father you ever knew. Even the best. And far, far better than the Father maybe you never knew. Even the worst. And the result of this, you will have a direct relationship with the Father in prayer, whatever you ask us, Jesus, through the Son, because you ask in my name. When will this happen? Well, twice Jesus tells us. He says, in that day. What does he mean? It's that day, that period in God's plan of salvation which follows the anguish and pain of the cross. It's that day, the resurrection of Jesus. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And it is that day when Jesus finally returns to the Father where he ever lives to intercede for us as we sang in our opening song. In that day, verse 26, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. So Jesus is no longer with them. Is that a bad thing? No, because he's seated at the right hand of authority and you can speak to God the Father directly because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And so Jesus says, it'll be a time of great joy. Your joy will be complete. Verse 24. So it's now possible 
To enjoy the promise which Jesus made. He's risen and ascended in glory. The writer to the Hebrews says, he's brought many sons to glory. Hebrews 2 verse 10. And now through Jesus we can enjoy an intimate relationship with God the Father. As in the name of Jesus we bring our requests to him, knowing he will hear and answer them. Now don't just take that for granted. It is an amazing Truly amazing privilege. We come to the Father through Jesus the Son with the help of the Holy Spirit who gives us new life and makes this all real and possible to us. So writing to the Christians in Rome, the Apostle Paul reminds them of what it means to know we are God's children. He says you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, of adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Romans 8, 15 to 16. So I stop at this point again and ask you, not only do you understand the meaning of the cross, do you understand what it means to have a living relationship with God as his child? Does his spirit witness with your spirit that you are God's child and you can speak to him directly at any time and ask anything in his name? Are you enjoying the promise that Jesus made? How is it possible? Through the pain and agony of the cross, which is productive. It brings us into a living relationship with God the Father. The chapter concludes with the third and final reason for joy. Experiencing the peace which Jesus won. When I use the words carefully, look at the last couple of verses as we conclude. If someone asks you, what's it like being a Christian? Could you, could you summarize it in one sentence? What should I expect if I follow Jesus? I wonder what you'd answer. I guess we'd all give a whole variety of different kinds of answers. Maybe you aren't a Christian and you've been asking your friends or you're asking yourself, I'm hearing what you're saying, but, you know, what's in the manifesto? What, what's in the brochure? What's promised? Well, the best person to ask is Jesus himself. And he gives you the answer in verse 33. This is what to expect if you follow Jesus. I've told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus tells his followers to expect just two things at the same time. Trouble in the world, peace in me. The word translated trouble literally means the Greek word, it's a lovely Greek word, thlipsis. It means pressure. It covers all sorts of adversity and difficulties. But it's not just a normal adversity and difficulty. It's not what Shakespeare called uh, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. It's trouble which is deliberately aimed because you're a follower of Jesus. We thought about that in our last study last, the last study last Sunday evening if you were here. The world, as we saw, is a world in rebellion against God and God's Son and against those who follow God's Son. So Jesus warns them to expect hatred and persecution, excommunication and even execution. And now he tells them it's going to be a time of weeping and mourning. It's going to be pretty painful. Maybe nobody's ever told you this about being a Christian. As we saw last week, friends, it is not in the small print, hidden away. This is written large. By Jesus, and it should be by us. 
So why does he tell them all these things if they're unavoidable? So that you won't seek your security in those things and so you won't be put off when they happen and say, gosh, nobody ever told me it's so hard to be a Christian. Nobody ever told me people wouldn't like me now I'm following Jesus. No, he says, in the world you will have trouble, but alongside that trouble in the world, you will also experience not only trouble in the world, but peace in me. In the beginning of this last word that we looked at, right at the beginning of our series, Jesus spoke about the peace he would give to his followers. John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. For Jews, peace was conveyed by that wonderful word, shalom, which means well-being in every aspect of life. Peace with God and with fellow human beings. But Jesus says his peace is different. When you were hated and even killed, peace is the last thing you would equate with that experience, is it not? You'd say, no, that's not peace, that's war. Seems a contradiction in terms. But the peace that Jesus gives is very different from what the world offers, dependent as the world's peace is on circumstance. The peace that Jesus gives can be experienced at the same time as you experience trouble and pressure in the world for one good reason. It is a peace which Jesus has won because he has overcome the world. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. What does he mean? When did it happen? It means that he has defeated all that the world has to offer. That all that the world has to throw against him, hatred, persecution, death, he has won the victory through the cross. Now when he speaks these words, that's not yet happened. But it is so certain to happen, he is looking forward in anticipation. He has won the victory through his cross. Writing to the Christians in Colossae, the Apostle Paul says about the Lord Jesus, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. His future victory was absolutely assured. He could promise it with absolute certainty. And so in all the troubles, his disciples could rejoice and experience God's peace. I'm trying to think of a good illustration of this, and if this is not a good illustration, just ignore it. Last Wednesday, I was in Heathrow Airport, and as I normally do, I caught the late flight. I was down at some mission board meetings, because it's the cheapest flight, and I'm dropped off about five o'clock, and I have three hours in the airport, and having read through this passage several times and thought what I was going to preach on, I wandered down to the bookstall, and I bought a book. It's a book, a series of books, which are kind of very light fiction, and it's about a man and his sidekick who always come against some megalomaniac in the world, and it goes on and on, but you know when you're reading it, I'm not going to be upset by this, because I know this guy's going to win by page 532, which is how long it was. I'm absolutely assured. Why? Because Nietzsche and I have read about 15 of these books, and they're all the same, but they're very exciting. And it's nice reading them, unlike these modern novels where you never know what's going to happen. The hero might be killed in page one and you're feeling sad the whole way through it. Well, (laughs) that's not a great illustration, I know that. But what he's saying is, in the world, you'll have trouble. But you can read on in your life with absolute assurance, because this is not fiction, this is reality. 
the Lord Jesus Christ has conquered. The victory is already won. Oh, you'll face trouble. But ultimate victory is assured. Think of that memorable phrase, and I wish we had time to look at it, but when, if you ever feel depressed as a Christian, go home and read the second half of Romans 8. All right? Just put it in your mind and do it. In all these things, says Paul, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. What things? Well, if you read what goes before, he says, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We experience the peace of God, that assurance that our lives are under his control. Don Carson comments, Jesus' point is that by his death, he has made the world's opposition pointless and beggarly. The decisive battle has been waged and won. The world continues its wretched attacks, but those who are in Christ share the victory as won. They cannot be harmed by the world's evil, and they know who triumphs in the end. From this they take heart and begin to share in his peace. Now, here's my third question. Do you know that kind of peace? No matter what happens. When your outboard motor breaks down in the middle of the ocean and your boat is circled by a white shark eight feet long. Or when you wake up tomorrow and something's in the news. Or you go to the doctors or somebody gets on your back and you're facing problems because you're a Christian, whatever it might be. Do you know what it is to know God's peace? That's the third reason for joy. Almost finished. Let's just summarize as we come to the Lord's table and celebrate this. We began with that picture that Jesus used to describe what the disciples would experience. That of a mother in labor who gives birth to a child from grief to joy. Look at the verse again. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when a baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. And as we come around the Lord's table and focus on that event on the cross... We also experience these two emotions, grief and joy. From grief to joy. From grief because of the suffering of Jesus. How can we think of it in any other way but with grief about what he suffered for us? And with grief because of our sin which made it necessary. But our grief turns to joy because of the victory of Jesus through the cross. And because of our sin, which has been forgiven. So the lasting legacy when we come around the Lord's table is joy. Lasting joy. Here's the final promise of Jesus. You will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Thanks be to God for his wonderful gift and for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to focus on that as we come around the Lord's table. Let's